Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And this week, I've been doing something different for the podcast. I've been out visiting the Investment Company Showcase event organized by the AIC, the Association of Investment Companies. That was held yesterday on Friday in London. And I thought this time what I would do is go around, pick up some of the most interesting speakers at this event. A large number of investment trust managers present there and a big turnout, 700 or so delegates turning up to listen to them. So it was, a, I think, a good event. It's an initiative by the new head of the AIC, uh, Richard Stone, to uh, help bring greater access to top investment trusts. Uh, to retail investors. I think on the balance, it was a success. I think they'll be pleased with how the event went. Having been away on holiday, of course, it's been another interesting and eventful week. Uh, I have a new prime minister, obviously, since I last recorded a podcast. Uh, And the markets have continued to be, well, quite volatile. The uh, equity markets have actually picked up a little bit. I think that's not a total surprise uh, since I've been away. And this week, that trend has continued for most of the week. Uh, The Investment Trust Index was up on a couple of days, Wednesday and Thursday, uh, and the oil share index also been positive this week. Uh, So the UK market continues to do well. US equity market also done pretty well the first few days of this week, but has uh, calmed down the last couple of days, particularly reflecting the impact of some rather bad numbers from the tech sector. We've heard uh, results from a number of the big tech stocks that uh, dominate their sector in the US. And uh, the results generally, apart from Apple, have been pretty poor, to be honest. They've come in below expectations, sparking a big sell-off in uh, the likes of Meta, that used to be Facebook, and uh, also in Amazon, which reported some disappointing sales. I think the issue was uh, summarized by uh, the CEO of Intel, uh, Paul Gelsinger, who said basically, essentially, Uh, It's hard to see any good news out there at the moment for tech companies. So US markets still are doing reasonably well considering the impact of these tech sector disappointments. We've also seen this week a slight firming in oil prices. And while bond yields have come down a little bit, so we've seen, particularly in the UK, we've seen gilt yields fall this week from starting 3.9%, the 10-year, down to 3.45%. Uh, and bear in mind, this is only 2% uh, three months ago. And in the States, the uh, the bellwether US 10-year Treasury seen its yield come off a little bit from 4.2% to 3.97%, just under 4%. That too was at 3% only three months ago. So the rise in bond yields has uh, stalled for now. And uh, of course, investors continue to wait uh, the latest pronouncements from the central banks. We've seen the ECB put up its... Uh, core interest rate by 75 basis points this week in line with expectations. So that continues to be the backcloth. Inflation numbers continue to be poor and uh, the sell-off that we've seen in markets has yet to reverse decisively. Well, that painted a rather quiet background for the uh, AIC event. I should mention that uh, the very first person I bumped into at the AIC event was Simon Elliott, my old colleague on this podcast who'd now, of course, moved to his new job at J.P. Morgan, which has been very much in the news this week. Two big announcements coming out of the J.P. Morgan stable. Of course, I won't be able to bring you Simon's comments on those this week. Uh, I did ask him, of course, and we had a good chat about it, but uh, 
he can't say anything uh, publicly on these matters. So what was the big news from JP Morgan? Well, the first one was the announcement that uh, fresh from completing its uh, merger with Scottish Investment Trust, which was uh, agreed last year, but only completed a very little while ago because of a number of technical issues to be sorted out. This week, the announcement came out from uh, JP Morgan Elect, which is an interesting vehicle that dates back to the old Fleming Investment Trust in the 1990s and uniquely has three different share classes, one cash, one a global managed portfolio, and the other a UK equity income portfolio. Interesting vehicle, but in recent years, it's become perhaps less relevant, or so at least the board seems to have decided in agreeing to propose this merger, or I should say sub-merger into JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, which is the trust that also absorbed Scottish Investment Trust. The proposal is that shareholders in JP Morgan Elect will be offered the chance to merge their vehicle into JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. Though there is an exception for shareholders in the global managed portfolio, which uh, is going to be rewarded with shares in a C-share issue effectively by JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. Uh, that, in other words, is a separate pool of assets that will eventually be merged into JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, but not immediately. Uh, the rationale behind that, I believe, is that a lot of the holdings in the global managed portfolio are other investment trusts, and this will enable those trusts not to have to be sold at the current discounts, which would be uh, not to the advantage of the shareholders in that particular share class. So as a result of this, if all the shareholders elect to approve uh, this particular transaction, that will add another significant chunk of assets to JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. Uh, it's interesting in the sense that uh, the investment strategy of JP Morgan Global Growth and Income is a total return strategy, as its name suggests, looking to provide both uh, capital gains and a decent yield which in their case is uh, achieved by this 4% of NAV distribution every year, uh, regardless of what, uh, there's not a formal dividend target, it's just uh, the trust will pay out 4% of its NAV at the dividend payment points during the calendar. That's an interesting deal, uh, a further evidence, if you like, of consolidation in the investment trust sector. JP Morgan Elect, with its combined net asset value, is several, a few hundred million. So it's not the smallest trust out there, but clearly the board has decided that uh, the particular objectives that the trust was set up to achieve with this interesting three share class structure is perhaps no longer as relevant or as important as it was before. Uh, and they have proposed this merger, which is to see whether the shareholders actually go along with that or not. The other big news out of the J.P. Morgan uh, Stable Investment Trust this week uh, concerns J.P. Morgan Russian Securities, which, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has effectively been unable to trade any of its uh, holdings. They've all been written down to zero by the board because of sanctions and the fact that the, there is no market in those underlying companies at the moment that the uh, trust can access. So what the proposal there is, the trust is asking its shareholders to approve effectively a widening of its mandate to become a diversified portfolio of quoted investments in Central, Eastern and Southern Europe, including Russia, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, the purpose of this is to allow the trust to make new investments while continuing to hold its currently 
untradable Russian stocks. Uh, interesting situation here. The shares obviously have sold off very, very sharply this year, but they do trade at a premium at the moment, uh, I think reflecting the fact that uh, some shareholders are hanging on in the hope that they will eventually be able to get some value out of the Russian holdings in the trust. Uh, and the primary uh, objective of this change is to protect them in the event that does not occur and to give them other opportunities to do something with their money in the trust. The shareholders will be asked to vote on the proposal on the 23rd of November. And if approved, the trust would change its name to J.P. Morgan Emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa Securities. And Oleg Brilyov, who has been the manager of the J.P. Morgan Russian Securities for a number of years, will continue to be the trust manager, with Pandora Omaset joining him as co-manager. So that will be an interesting one to watch. No immediate prospect, obviously, of those Russian holdings in J.P. Morgan Russian Securities having any value. But at some point, the war will end. And then that'll be an interesting moment to see what happens after that. We have no idea what that's going to be. But the board has obviously taken steps here to try and uh, offer the shareholders some kind of future in the worst case scenario. Elsewhere, we've heard some results from a number of trusts, including uh, Henderson International Income, J.P. Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income, Schroeder BSC Social Impact, that's an interesting, rather unusual vehicle, Harbourvest Global Private Equity, Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, and Vienna Capital Vietnam Opportunities. Uh, turning to the performance of the investment trust sector this week, you will find all the normal tables of movers in share price, NAVs, and discounts on the Moneymakers website for subscribers. Uh, but anyway, it's been noticeable this week there have been some significant uh, share price moves Interesting enough, we see in some of the uh, warehouse and logistics property trusts that have sold off quite sharply in the face of rising bond yields and also in the face of warnings about the likely impact of uh, global slowdown on the use of warehouses and other logistics properties. Uh, they've sold off very sharply, but they have recovered this week uh, in a number of cases, helped by quite a strong trading update from Industrials REIT, which is one of these investment trusts their shares have been up by nearly 10% this week. And that's been reflected also in better performance from other commercial property trusts, uh, not just those that specialize in that particular specialist space. Uh, we also had results from CT Property Trust, one of the more balanced commercial property trusts. And that actually reported a decline in capital values of 7%. That's an interesting uh, marker of how higher interest rates are going to have an impact on capitalization rates for commercial property trusts. And their capital value was down 7.1%. That was slightly less than the commercial property market index. So we've seen a good performance from a lot of commercial property trusts. They've perhaps been oversold after the sell-off in September. On the other side of the coin, we've seen some quite significant declines, particularly in trusts that specialize in China and also in Vietnam. Uh, whether this is anything to do with the reappointment of President Xi uh, for an th unprecedented third term, uh, securing his uh, lock on power in China. That may be one of the factors. Uh, but anyway, been a bad week for China and also for some of the growth capital private equity trusts. These are early stage business vehicles, unquoted business vehicles. So Xi Halian sold off quite strongly. But in NAV terms, we've seen a little bit of improvement, actually, in some of the smaller company investment trusts, which, again, have been moved out to wide discounts so far this year. So that's what's been happening in the markets. And obviously, I was keen to catch up and get a cross-section of opinion from those attending the AIC Investor Showcase event. 
And so I managed to speak to getting on for up to 10 different managers, and I'm going to include some of those short extracts from them. I should apologize in advance that because this was effectively recording live from the AIC event, there was quite a lot of background noise. So I hope that won't spoil your enjoyment of this week's podcast. I know it's been a bit of a nightmare for my producer colleague, Ben, had to deal with all that, but I hope you'll bear with us on that. Uh, Next week, we'll be back to uh, a more calm, benign recording environment. Uh, This week on The Circle, also I should mention, we have another profile, this one of Third Point Investors. This is a hedge fund managed by Dan Loeb. So if you're interested in that, you'll find it at the normal address, money-makers.co. So on to the AIC's Investor Showcase event. The first person I talked to, uh, not perhaps surprisingly, was uh, Richard Stone, the CEO of the AIC. And I was keen to find out what uh, he's hoping to achieve by launching this new event. So Richard, tell us about this uh, event. Why are you holding it and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Uh, Thank you, Jonathan. So the Investment Company Showcase, it's the first time that the AIC has done an event like this, and it's designed really to promote the sector to a retail private investor audience and to give those investors the opportunity to see up close, if you like, and and face-to-face the fund managers in our sector. We have over 40 speakers on the day and really trying to give retail personal investors access to those fund managers and to, to hear from them what's going on in their funds, what's going on in their various sectors. We have a real spread of of sectors and companies and management groups represented. We've got over 700 investors signed up to come along on the day. So hopefully it should be a a good audience and very much looking forward to to giving that opportunity and and pulling together really the investment company world, showing off its best face to to the retail market and, and promoting itself in a way that it hasn't done before. And will this become a, a permanent feature, do you think? I'm certainly hoping so. I mean, demand suggests that there's definite uh, appetite out there amongst investors, which is really encouraging. And, you know, we know how passionate we are about the sector and we know that there's a, a cohort of investors that are passionate about the sector. The question is getting that message and getting all the strengths that the sector can bring to the benefit of, of investors out there for, for more people to hear. And this is a, a great way of doing that. So, yeah. And this turnout is despite the fact that the markets have been very tough this year and investment trusts have not been immune to that. I guess some people will be coming looking to be reassured, others will be coming to looking for opportunities. Yeah, I think reassurance, opportunities and you know the, the investment company sector is so broad. There are so many different asset classes and strategies and approaches that you can invest in that whether you think now is a great opportunity to buy a particular market because of the discounts, whether you think that you know, you're looking for things that are more defensive, you're looking for income things, whatever, you know, the investment companies sector somewhere within the the mix there's a strategy and a fund which will will, uh, hopefully meet what you're looking for so um, i think there's good cause for for investors to come along and and see what we've got to offer the next person i caught up with at the event was nick brind who is one of the co-managers of the polar capital global financials trust this as its name suggests is a trust that specializes in investing mainly in banks but also in insurance companies and faster growing smaller fintech companies photo capital global financials ticker pcft is an interesting vehicle a good example of how change can happen in the investment trust sector it had a near death experience during the pandemic when voters were asked whether or not to continue with the trust after it sold off during the pandemic and only voted by a narrow majority to keep the trust in business. But since then, it's done pretty well. Its shares went from 100p to a peak of around 180p earlier this year. Since when they've sold off, 
again, not surprisingly, they're trading around 145, 146p today, has a dividend yield of about 3% and has been trading at a discount, uh, obviously, this year. Uh, shares are sold off despite the fact that uh, rising interest rates are normally good for banks. So my first question, obviously, to Nick Brind was, uh, how has the trust been performing, uh, given an environment of falling equity prices and rising bond yields? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's obviously, much like most other sectors, there's been a material impact. I mean, coming into the year, the sector was benefiting from the tailwinds of higher interest rates and bond yields. That improves their earnings outlook, you know, wider net interest margins as loan yields reprice upwards. For insurance, obviously, they're reinvesting at higher bond yields to getting a higher return on their investment income. But the, you know, shock of the Russian invasion and obviously slowdown in growth has made people very worried about the outlook. And, and, and for banks, the big uncertainty is how large will their loan losses be. So you've seen bank shares fall on the back of that, albeit still actually do probably better than most people thought they would do in light of the sort of weaker outlook. So actually, it's a, it's a really interesting point, you know, now. You know, valuations haven't been this low for only a few days in the last 15 years. So pricing in a lot of bad news, but, you know, you need your crystal ball to know exactly how, how deep this downturn we're going into is going to be, and that's, that's yeah. the, the unknown. Obviously. As you say, I mean, the fundamentals of banks on the whole look better, obviously, with rising yeah. interest rates. Uh, they're not passing it on to consumers yet anyway. Uh, but then you've got people like Jamie Dimon coming out of JP Morgan and, and sounding pretty yeah. gloomy, shall we say. He's talking about a recession. Do you think a recession is inevitable? Is that about to happen? Are we going to have credit issues as arising from that? I see it's hard not to believe we are going to go into one. The, the depth and duration is obviously difficult to know. The interesting difference this time around is people have come into the downturn with a lot more money in their bank because of what happened during the pandemic. And so, whereas in most recessions, you start to see people defaulting on their credit cards or whatever quite early on, that's, that's yet to happen. Actually, asset quality is remarkably benign. So it's the dog that's yet to bark. But it will happen. And, um, yeah, that's going to be a tough time for some people. And what are you doing in the portfolio? What, are, have you, what kind of adjustments have you made as a result of this rather tricky environment, yeah. as you say? We pulled back a bit from banks at the, sort of early on in the year, um, on the back of the invasion of Ukraine, reduced our exposure to Europe. We still like the outlook for the US. It's got the advantages of obviously not having an energy crunch. Their mortgage market is fixed rate and you know, very, very long you know, mortgage terms. So you're not going to see the impact on the cost of living that you're seeing in Europe. So we think the US will be more resilient. So we've leaned a little bit towards that direction. Uh, we've taken gearing down on the trust. It's about 1% or 2% at the moment. It was as high as 12% plus going back a year, 18 months. And uh, we're just, just being a bit more cautious and, and biding our time. And remind me about, uh, are, you, are you buying back shares? I think, what's your policy to the discount? Yeah, so it's, it's a great one. It's the, the great thing about trusts is the opportunity to buy at a discount. And it's the downside as well if you get caught by that. Understandably, we've, we've moved to a discount. It's been around 10 12% in, in recent weeks. Now, we had a reconstruction in 2020 where the trust's life was extended indefinitely. We have a, a tender offer every five years 
100% at NAV, less a little bit for cost. So that's in two and a half years' time, the next one. Um, so that hopefully provides an anchor, and we've been buying back shares you know, to try and obviously help um, put a floor under that discount. So next, I managed to catch up with Kyle Colwell, who has been known to many uh, of those who follow Interactive Investor, uh, does a weekly podcast like I do. He's been speaking today at the conference. Uh, what were you saying? So I gave a talk which explains some of the lessons that I've learned over the past decade or so of interviewing fund managers. I think over, over that time period, I must have interviewed over 100 fund managers. So what I wanted to do was show private investors the questions that I typically ask for managers, and they, they include the elevator pitch, which gives the investment trust manager the opportunity to explain how they invest, what their investment style is, what the checklist of attributes are that they like, like to see in a business, what companies they avoid. I also mentioned that, I, you know, just as, as in common with um, potentially buying an investment trust, um, I look at the track record, and um, you know, if it's going through a, a period of underperformance, then you know, I hold the fund manager to account on that um, for them to explain why. I also asked them, especially when it's an investment trust, well, when it's an investment trust, I asked them to, um, okay, you've got there are these various investment trust structural advantages. How are they being used to benefit private investors? So if it's an investment trust that um, has a really strong dividend track record, I asked them, okay, that, that's all well and good and that's fantastic, but how sustainable is that dividend going forward? And so I you know, try and drill into the dividends and the sustainability of that. Because I think you know, if you're sizing up, potentially buying one of these dividend heroes, what you've got to remember is these track records are great, but those income returns, they've went to other investors rather than yourself. So you need to look forward and question whether those dividends are sustainable going forward. So um, yeah, there were a couple of things I mentioned. I also mentioned a big bugbear of mine, which is that um, some fund managers don't reveal stocks outside the top 10 holdings in interviews. Personally, I find that frustrating because I think you know, fund managers should be even more transparent, should be pushing for greater transparency, not less. Um, so I think it's important that they illustrate their ideas of how they invest in you know, other people's money ultimately, how they're doing that outside the information that you know, a private investor can just readily see on a fact sheet, which is just the top 10 holdings. Of course, uh, I mean, fund managers these days are all very well trained in how to deal with the media and they tend to be quite smooth presenters. Are there any kind of particular quirks that you look out for when you're talking to these managers to see if they're just sort of taking a corporate line or whether they're actually uh, genuinely uh, talking from the heart about what they, what they do? I think interviewing a fund manager, particularly for the first time, it's, it's a bit like speed dating because the first pitch, it's very persuasive. And, um, you know, as a financial journalist, most of them, you know, they're going to be nice to me. So um, I interview a fund manager and I come away from it and I think, wow, like everything they said really resonates and I completely agree with their view on X, Y and Z. And then I either get off the phone or get back into the office and I look again at its track record. And then I think, OK, if everything they're saying was that fantastic, why is that investment trust second or third quartile? Why isn't it in the top 10 percent? Why isn't it number one, basically? Obviously, past performance is no guide to the future. But that does make me come away and think there can only be a, a small number of stars. It's a means some game, ultimately, um, for management. Um, there's going to be winners and losers. So you've got to do your research. Can you pick out a couple of people you've interviewed who really impressed you? I wouldn't ask you to tell you the ones who didn't really impress you. I'm sure there are a few of those, but uh, that would be invidious, of course. But uh, anybody who really particularly stands out over the years? 
Definitely um, James Anderson, the former manager of um, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. I've interviewed him a few times over the years. Um, the first time I interviewed him was eight, nine years ago. I came away from the meeting and I just felt like, no disrespect to other fund managers, I just felt like he was on a different level. Not like astronomically, but I just felt, if you're comparing it to say football, you know, I just felt like, you know, he was basically the Messi or Ronaldo of the football world. Because a lot of what he was saying, and talking about, he was he was very forward-thinking, looking what the next 10, 20 years, having thought he was already having in his mind, how the portfolio was going to change over that time period. And, it, you know, it's talked about um, speed dating. I did come out of the office and I, I did buy shares in Scottish Mortgage. Um, and, you know, it was, it was obviously fortunate time and I've had a really That was good, a few years ago. You were doing very well, yeah. Yeah, I've had, a, I've had a good run of performance. Obviously, yeah. obviously it's you still been, own them now? I do still own them, yeah, because... Um, I think the new uh, lead manager, Tom Slater, he was he was brought in with plenty of time ahead of James Anderson's retirement from fund management. And um, I feel like the ethos of the investment trust, it hasn't changed. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with it. So next I caught up with uh, Jason Bagley, who's the manager of the Aberdeen Property Income Trust. It's an interesting time to be talking about property. Obviously, we've seen a big repricing in the last few weeks in particular. And many uh, property trusts are already trading at a big discount. So what do you think is going on, uh, Jason? Absolutely. The discounts are very wide and have widened over the recent past. I think a lot of it is there's a global re-rating of real assets. So prices are changing. We've seen valuations start to move. So valuations increase in, in real estate in the UK over the first half of the year. They started to fall in the last quarter. And they're going to continue to fall, I think, you know, over the next six, 12 months. So a rebasing based on the guilt yield rising, the risk-free rate, the premium over risk-free that you expect for real estate. So I think people are forward planning those falls. You had a tricky time during the, the pandemic, of course. That was a tough time for a lot of uh, property trusts with lockdowns and so on. And you're just beginning to recover from all that and get things back to normal. And here we go with a different, a completely different set of uh, issues there this time around. Yes, I, I think you know, those of us who have been through quite a few downturns before um, always think, well, which one is this most like? And, and, and they're all different. So the pandemic was a certain circumstance of, of challenges. As you say, we'd overcome that. In fact, it was a quite a short-lived problem. Today, our tenants are in good strength. We've got good occupation levels across the markets. So it's really about a capital rather than an income challenge. So that means that you'll be able to at least maintain the dividend levels from here through whatever happens. Is that the realistic option or not? We certainly hope so, yes. I mean, it um, could be a recession. If there's a recession, then that normally is uh, quite a tough period for guys like you. It can be. You know, I think we've got some good tenants who a lot of the people who've remained over the last 15 years have done so through consolidation of less competition. They've generally got good balance sheets, operate the company as well. So we're hopeful that we won't have to, to trim the dividend, but... As you say, you know, in a recession, who knows what's going to happen. What sort of yield are we looking at in terms of your trust at the moment, assuming that it's maintained or whatever guidance you've given on that? What sort of yield are we looking at at the moment? As of today, it's about 6.7%. So that's quite a rich dividend. So that might suggest that uh, maybe the, you know, it will be quite tough to, to get through the next period. Or do you think that they should normally be trading at a, at a premium to gilts, obviously? But uh, how would you look at that? How should we think about uh, dividend yields yeah, in that so context? I think it's a really interesting question. Until you actually can work out where you think that gilts are going to normalise and interest rates are going to normalise, very hard to give an answer at an absolute level. But if you think pre-GFC, 
property yields and, and the trust was yielding sort of five and a half to six percent. That had fallen over the, the last few years with much lower interest rates and it was really trading in a band of about four to four and three quarter percent, occasionally hitting five percent. So I think, you know, six doesn't sound unreasonable. In the current climate. In the current climate. So what have you been doing in the portfolio to deal with these uh, tricky circumstances? I mean, have you been moving into, uh, in, you know, warehouses and things? Have you done like everybody else has been doing? Or do you think that one's overdone now? Uh, to be honest, we did that about 10 years ago. So just over 10 years ago, before the GFC, we'd reduced our retail weighting from 20 to sub 10%. We'd increased our industrial logistics exposure, which has been over 50% for the last 10 years. So what we've we been doing, actually, we've been trimming some offices. We've sold a number of offices over the last year and a half, uh, two years. Um, we're very focused on the type of office we want to own. We actually took some profit out of some industrial logistics over the last 15 months as well. Maybe sold them slightly too soon, but um, sold them for great reasons of thinking that there's going to be stress coming into the market on the occupational side for small units with high costs, shortage of labour, etc. So we've, we've been taking a bit of profit. We're reducing exposure, as I say, to offices. Of course, longer term, property is a real asset or should be a real asset, should perform as a real asset. We've got high inflation now. We're all hoping it'll come down at some point. We don't know when. (laughs) We certainly are. But over the longer term, you know, what are the prospects for property in this kind of inflationary environment that we're moving into? Yes, I mean, there's lots of talk about uh, inflation-linked leases. Most of them aren't. Um, And those that do have a direct link to CPI or RPI have a cap and collar generally. So real estate will provide an inflation hedge over time. But it will be over time. It is over time. It doesn't keep up with 10% per annum (laughs) when that's running at 10% per annum. Over time, we'll see rental growth coming through. That relies on some economic strength. So, you know, if we're in a recession, it's very hard to grow rents. But I expect to see continued rental growth in logistics, not at the pace we have been seeing. But actually, there's a shortage of supply nationally, and that's not going to change. The onshoring of supply chain, etc., is going to continue to bring demand. So there is going to be pockets of rental growth still available to us. And is there anything you can do about the discount? I mean, you said the discount, I think in your case, is about 50%. I mean, that's a huge discount. Uh, Obviously, there is the prospect of further decline in capital values. Um, But what can you do as a trust uh, to do that? We've heard a lot about the problems that the open-ended property trust funds have had. But uh, are you you able to do much about that? Or are you going to just stick with where you are and try and ride through it? I'd love to have a really good answer to that question. We've tried share buybacks. We've bought back quite a few shares already. Um, it didn't really make much difference. And obviously, we've, we've taken another leg down. The whole sector is on a significant discount and not dissimilar. It's very hard to see what we can do, which is different. I've always been a great believer. I'll focus on what I can control. I can't control where interest rates go and perception. So we are really just making sure that the underlying portfolio is managed to the best of our ability to create as much income as we can to distribute to shareholders. And hopefully if we get that right, we'll start getting some more buyers uh, believing that it becomes attractive again as, as, as things stabilise and hopefully the discount will come down. It hasn't been as bad as 50%. For, what did it get to during the uh, GFC? At worst, it was 54%. Right. So you're part of that level at the moment, getting closer. Yes, and I don't think we're in anything like such a significant, troublesome time as we were at the GFC, where obviously leverage was higher, the whole market was shut, and there's a lot of stress. There actually is much less stress at a market level at the moment within real estate. I think this is a shorter-term issue. 
and hopefully as we get a, a more stable government, we might get a shorter and less, less deep recession to, to be able to see a bit of growth come forward. Next, I caught up with uh, Bruce Stout, the long-serving manager of the Murray International Investment Trust. Sits in the global equity income sector, and I think it's fair to say is the best performer over the last year, at least in the uh, global equity income sector. So, Bruce, what have you been saying to people today? Well, we just continue to try and focus on delivering what we've always delivered. Um, we haven't been doing anything different this year or last year or the year before. I mean, we continue just to focus on good quality businesses that have got strong cash flow and deliver dividends that we can then pay out to shareholders. So it's been a tough period for income trusts, obviously, since the business interruption in, in COVID. But dividends have recovered very well in, in particular sectors uh, you know, throughout the world. And, and Money International has seen the benefit of that as well in the way that we're positioned, because we are truly diversified and truly global. And you're delivering on your target, which is you, you're delivering a yield at the moment around north of 5% or around 5%? It's not quite 5 I don't think, but it's sort of varied between 45 But we had a chat to, you know, in the last presentation we did, and it's been there for the best part of 20 years. I mean, it, it sometimes goes below 4 or, or had done when the, the trust traded at a premium, and I think it touched 6 a few times when, when markets got a bit emotional. But, you know, that's the kind of yield that many of the underlying holdings deliver um, and that's what we want to, to try and deliver for shareholders. I mean, looking at the world and global environment at the moment, I think it's fair to say you're probably not surprised by what's happened in the last year or so because you've been saying for a number of years that uh, some of the policies that uh, central banks have been pursuing have been perhaps a little unwise. Can I say that without putting words in your mouth? No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's no surprise in as much as we've had a very, very long period of of excess, um, where bond markets are not priced by the market, they've been priced by governments, so we've had financial repression there. And it, it's been very much equity, growth equity has been priced for a for a, what we would call a 2% world of low interest rates and low inflation. But perhaps we're going back to a 5% world. And, and if that's the case, then uh, you know a lot of developed bond markets look very expensive. A lot of very high growth equities look very, very expensive because they've had such a prolonged period of multiple expansion. So that's where the vulnerability has been in the broader market, but that's not really reflected in our portfolio because in our portfolio we look for a certain type of business that will deliver our mandate um, and, and therefore we don't have to be distracted by what's going on in the market. And looking around the world, I mean, there are, it's interesting that some countries have, have not experienced the same kind of uh, surging inflation that uh, we've seen in the US and the UK and Europe. So uh, have you been able to uh, still find opportunities there as well? Yeah, I mean, inflation in many countries is, is what we would call normal. The abnormal thing is, is how slow central banks have been in the developed world to respond to inflation. Because when we look at Asia or we look at South America in, just in, in general, uh, many of those central banks moved on interest rates last year, not this year. So Brazil had already had interest rates up from 4 to 13.5% by the end of, of 2021. So inflation is falling now in these countries, not rising. And because the central banks have been on it right from the word go. Uh, the anomaly there is that the central banks have got so used to managing asset prices in the developed world that they've taken their eye off the ball, which is to maintain price stability. That's what their mandate is. That's what they've failed to deliver. And that's why they're now playing catch-up. They're playing very big catch-up, yeah. The other factor which has been very dominant in the last uh, few years has been the strength of the dollar. How does that impact your trust and, and, and the kind of returns you can deliver back to Sterling Shell? The dollar is always a, a very difficult one to predict because any time there's 
instability or, or emotions start to run high, everybody buys dollars all around the world. But remember, we've got 25 different currencies in Money International, so there's all sorts of cross rates. I mean, um, sterling is actually up this year against some of the Scandi currencies, which is very unusual given that it's down probably 15% <laughs> against the US dollar. Yes. So it, it kind of all it comes out in the wash, you know. It, it can be advantageous. I mean, probably the most clear example was 2016 where sterling had a very sharp fall after Brexit and, and that meant from an international's point of view it was very advantageous particularly on the revenue side where I think we put nearly 5 million into reserves that year but of course that worked against us and in the first half of 18 for example sterling was actually quite strong but over the longer term the currencies tend to wash each other out. Well, sterling against the dollar does tend to decline a little bit over time, you wouldn't say? Uh, over all time, I would think, and certainly <laughs> throughout my lifetime. And that's probably more a reflection of the sort of structural decline in many of um, aspects of the UK economy, because the UK's run a trade and current account deficit since I was born, and now we have this massive funding gap with the public sector borrowing is being consistently financed by overseas bond investors. So our demand for capital is huge. Um, the danger is that if we start to run higher inflation, then the only thing that can take up the strain is the exchange rate. And we've seen that before. So that, that would be a concern, certainly for people in the UK. It wouldn't be really a concern for us because 95% of our assets are not in sterling. So I was also happy to uh, catch up with Paul Niven, who's the manager of the FNC Investment Trust, the oldest investment trust in the sector. It goes all the way back to 1868, as we all now know. Uh, you've been the manager since 2014. In relative terms, these are very tough markets, as we know. First of all, give me your take on where we are in the in the big cycle, if you like, of the global economy and interest rates. Sure. Um, well, it has been very difficult, as you've said. I mean, equity markets are down around 20% or thereabouts in local currency terms year to date. Obviously, as a sterling investor, uh, some of that downside has been uh, cushioned somewhat. What markets have been grappling with in recent months has been clearly rising inflation across all major regions. Um, uh, tight labour market in the US, high wage growth in the US, concern about what that means in terms of central bank policy. So we've seen quite a sharp repricing in terms of interest rate expectations across the US, the UK uh, and the Eurozone. And that has led to a compression in terms of market multiples. The price that people are paying for equities has essentially come down and price people have been paying for long duration equities like growth assets has come down even more. And in addition to that, um, we've seen quite substantial uh, downgrades coming through in terms of growth expectations. Not particularly surprised, inflation up, interest rates up, growth expectations down. So a very difficult period for, for markets. My sense is what we've seen in the last year has been an adjustment on the basis of interest and inflation expectations. I think that process is probably about done, I'm hopeful. Off. Uh, what that means is that derating in markets hopefully were, were there or thereabouts in the sense that interest rate expectations are now plausible. I think they were way too optimistic uh, even a few months ago, but they're, they're, again, they're, they're probably about right. What is not yet in the market, arguably, though, is the, the downturn which has come from earnings. Uh, and I think we're beginning to see that clearly in terms of the, the, the reporting season in the US. Some very big hits in terms of uh, impact on stock prices from disappointing earnings, particularly in the technology space and the growth space in particular. And, and unfortunately, I think there's a bit more to come. So I think some good news in the sense that expectations have moved an awful long way in terms of market pricing. 
but I'm not convinced we're there yet in terms of full appreciation that we are likely to have a US recession next year, and indeed we're going to have a UK and, and also a European recession, unfortunately. Well, we can't escape that fact. Uh, and there's been really uh, not many places to hide in terms of, uh, because we've seen stocks go down, bonds go down, gold is disappointed in dollar terms at least. So what have you been doing? How have you been uh, trying to manage your way through this? And you've done relatively well in your sector, I think it's fair to say. Yes, we have done well. Uh, our share price is down around about 4% in absolute terms year to date, which is disappointing to lose value, Clay, but uh, compared to some of the other losses, which I've seen, is actually <laughs> a, 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 there, yeah. a relatively good out, outturn. I think more pleasing than that, frankly, is the fact that we've delivered top quartile returns against peers over all time periods. That's year to date, one, three, five, and 10 years. So consistent outperformance. And that's unusual, I think. The reason we've been able to do that is essentially a a few significant moves that we made, not just this year, but uh, actually over the course of the past couple of years. One, we started selling uh, significantly out of US large cap growth stocks in the second half of 2020. We sold about $800 million. Most of that was actually last year, although we did do some further sales early this year. As they were going up. As they were going up. And and again, you know, we put a lot of that capital into income and value stocks. That has worked well for us. Secondly, we are essentially short bonds. We we issued an awful lot of long-dated debt. And as interest rates have have risen, that's been accretive to NAV because we were issuing debt, drawing debt actually earlier this year at 1.87%. For forty-year note, it was a fantastic. Extraordinary. Issue, that was only a few months ago. Actually. Only a few months ago, although yeah. we struck that deal in December last year. Uh, and importantly, we did not put all of that capital to work in the market. So we raised cash. Actually, we raised cash quite significantly, uh, about three hundred million pounds in the early part of this year. The effect of that was essentially to take gearing from ten percent or thereabouts at the beginning of this year down to about one and a half percent at the end of the third quarter, uh, and most of that adjustment taking place early this year before markets really sold off. So we managed some of those aspects well. In addition, we did have quite a substantial long position on sterling, which we took off before the uh, <laughs> sharp decline. So we benefited clearly from the decline in sterling, and we benefited from having taken off what was a, a long position. So there's been a number of those uh, more macro decisions which have added value, and we've also had good stock selection from a number of underlying areas, particularly, I would say, in the value space. The value strategies, income strategies have done very well for us this year. How do you see that changing? If the world pans out as the way you think it, Well, I mean, we could get a bit worse before it gets better. You're going to have to be nimble again to make these moves in reverse, if you like? Yeah, I'm not sure that we'll be making wholesale reversals in terms of of positions. I think it's fair to say that a lot of the air has come out of growth-oriented sectors. I mean, if you look, for example, at the poster child of US growth investing in terms of Kathy Wood and the ARK Innovation Fund, that's down something like 80% from the peak, right? So that's consistent with what you saw in the NASDAQ post-dot-com bubble bursting. So there's been some very substantial moves. What I would say though is, I think though that there is still a value case for value, that growth is still trading at quite a large premium relative to growth. Despite what's happened. Despite what's happened, I think the higher interest rate environment that we're seeing is conducive to to value outperformance. So I think things are only easy with the benefit of hindsight, but I do think it's even harder going forward actually, because I do think that the growth probably, probably structurally will continue to lag. But I can see a scenario emerging where, as I expect, uh, we see a growth downturn and deed recession and interest rate expectations begin to peak out, bond yields begin to fall. So that gives a little bit more support to the growth trade. So uh, I'd make the obvious point, it's important to be balanced, but we, you know, I don't think I'm going to be reversing some of those trades uh, anytime soon. 
Also very happy to catch up with James Henderson from Janus Henderson, manager of three investment trusts with his colleagues. We're going to talk about the UK market, uh, James. Obviously, you've been doing this now for 30 years or so. UK market's been an interesting story this year. The FTSE's done relatively well compared to the world. Small cap and mid cap sold off. How do you uh, see what's been happening this year? Well, Jonathan, you're, you're being very kind. It's 40 years of doing the UK. And <laughs> I've, I've never known it to be so cheap. I look at portfolios and I see them now sub nine times with yields of six. And that's what I always come back to when the world seems very difficult and politics is very noisy, then go back and look at what companies are going to pay dividend-wise, and I then try and test those dividends. Are those dividends real? You know, in the crash of the financial crisis of 2007-8, they weren't real. They weren't real, obviously, pre-COVID. But this time round, companies reset their dividends over COVID. I think most of the dividends I look at, they will be paid They are, and they are going to grow. And it's growing dividends from the 6% level that make me feel very positive about the UK when I get away from listening, reading the newspapers too much and focus back on the companies. And companies are generating cash. They are very disciplined at the moment. COVID was a very scary time for companies and they took action and they focused on what they did do well coming out the other side. So we're going into this slowdown with a very disciplined corporate base in the UK. And that disciplined corporate base places it well to get through. Usually you go into a recession where everyone thinking they're quite good managers. You've usually had a boom time before and the companies, I think, they're, they probably overexpanded. They probably put up some plant because they're getting such good returns from their other plants at the wrong time. And when the, the when demand then drops, they can't fill that new capacity and they, they have a very difficult period. This time, there hasn't been that kind of spend going into the slowdown. So you haven't got this capacity overhang. In fact, there isn't really enough capacity. That's why we're sort of seeing some of the inflation pressures we're seeing. A little bit of a slowdown, inflation will come down and companies, I believe, will get through it better than usual into a slowdown. Managers in the UK sector have been saying for some time that the UK market overall looks cheap. And we've seen a bit of M&A from overseas companies coming in and buying up UK companies because they are cheap. But uh, what is the catalyst for actually, do you think, the market and international investors in particular? Uh, is there any prospect they're going to come back to the uh, UK market anytime soon and uh, help to drive demand for shares in trusts like yours? I think um, there have been a lot of reasons not to buy the UK. And the biggest started in June 2016 when Brexit came along. And overseas investors weren't sure what was going to be happening in the UK. So their UK weightings are, are low. And that's not a bad place to start. It only needs them to stop selling or to slightly marginally buy. And that dynamic changes. Um, I think it'll take a while before we see overseas flows into the UK. I think we will, as you say, see some corporate activity. At the moment, it's still quite difficult if you're sitting around a boardroom table overseas to say, let's buy something in the UK. The other directors would look at look you and you. say, you're mad. have you not picked up a newspaper? They've, yeah. they've had three prime ministers in the, in the places. Um, so that's not the kind of environment you know you, you see um, an American necessarily coming over. But we have had some bids in spite of that. The time people you see more bids is when you see a bit of stability and, and, and that growth beginning to come through and, and that's actually the time you don't want to lose the companies actually but um, that's how it, how it goes but that's to come I think 
I think what we need to see first is is that stability, both political, to show that those companies' dividends are coming through. And as I say, I believe that they will be coming through, and that's the background that, that will be more constructive for domestic investors to come into the UK. I think it starts with a domestic investor. And we're seeing signs of that, you know. Um, why are we seeing signs of that? Something like Lord Adventure that run is issuing shares at the moment to cap the, the premium, to let the premium run away. And that's happening at a time when there's almost bad news. And that's, that's really healthy. That shows that the retail domestic investor is looking through some of this. And these upswings do start there. You manage the equity portfolios of uh, Henderson Opportunities Trust, uh, Lord Adventure and uh, Lowland. Lowland. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all very different in, in a way. They have different mandates and so on. But in terms of the smaller company, a smaller mid-cap one, Henderson Opportunities Trust, you've still got the gearing on that. You tend to have gearing all the time in Henderson Opportunities Trust. So that probably contributed to the fact that the discount's gone down quite a lot. You're, what, 20% discount now, something like that? Actually, rather like Lord Richard, retail's just got a bit better, and I think it's down to about 12, actually, um, and we are seeing that um, domestic buyer, not the institutionals, uh, the, the people that are finding the value are the small retail buyer. Interestingly enough, that's what these trusts were actually always set up for. They were never actually set up for the big wealth managers. They can perfectly well do the job themselves. Yeah. It's about getting a portfolio of interesting companies that the private investors wants and needs um, and not wanting to follow all those companies themselves and we're going back to that and it's the percentage of the private investor is going up the whole time and the wealth manager is been going down and I see that trend continuing and what's nice is now the wealth manager is, is down quite a long way they haven't got a lot more to sell and <laughs> with the retail investor buying we could really reduce discounts substantially the, the next period if the momentum in the we need, a, we need a trigger to start the thing working. Finally, you said you've been doing this for 40 years. You're not planning to stop anytime soon? Well, you're looking forward to the moment when everything comes really cheap and you're going to be soaring back up to the top of the performance yeah, tables again. I'm, Is that I'm, right? I'm enjoying it, yes. I think there are real opportunities at the moment. It's always strange when you can see companies really frustrated that what they, they can't find anyone to talk to and they're so pleased to talk to you. You know that they're somewhere near the bottom then because it's when everyone wants to see the companies that they're over priced and, yeah. and, and their troubles about to begin. At the moment, it's great visiting companies and they, they go, James, you're the first person to come for ages to see us. And I always know when that's happening that their expectations are suitably low and that's a good starting point. So I'm, I'm really you're, enjoying you're it. You're beginning to hear that now. Yeah, I'm hearing that now. I'm really enjoying it. I was very happy also to catch up with Paolo Almeida, who's the manager of Tufton Oceanic Assets, which is a investment trust that invests in shipping. And indeed, is the first of the shipping trusts that have come back to the market in the last few years. It's been listed since December 2017. Tell us what the performance of the trust has been like since it began, first in NAV terms and then in share price terms. So we have had a since inception IRR of just over 17%. That's with very little leverage in the fund. Clearly, the share price return is a bit lower than that, although we've paid strong dividends throughout, as with nearly all, if not all, 
of the investment company, investment trust sector. We're currently at a discount. We're currently at a slightly more than 20% discount to NAV. We have, however, taken some action on that. You may have seen that we, as managers and a couple of board members, bought shares last week, shortly after announcing the third quarter NAV and the increase in our dividend. First of all, tell us just what's been happening in the shipping market. It's been quite an eventful period, shall we say, with COVID and then with uh, what's going on at the moment. So tell us what exactly are you doing in terms of shipping and uh, how has the market has shipping changed in the last few it, years? It absolutely has been an, an eventful uh, few years, not only for the world, but for uh, for shipping. First, clearly COVID had as an impact on shipping, which in some of the sectors was negative in that there was an expectation that the uh, lockdowns, et cetera, would, would lead to uh, recession. So that had a bit of a negative impact on container ships and bulkers. But because of the very strong contango in the oil price and the floating storage boom that everyone now uh, knows about, tankers performed extremely well. So we've always had a diversified portfolio. And because we did, um, we actually had quite good returns, even in the first half of uh, 2020 relative to other shipping companies, other trusts. Since then, clearly, everyone also knows about the consumer boom that has led to the boom in container shipping. We've taken the opportunity to actually exit nearly all of the container ships that we had in the portfolio. We only have one container ship left, which is about 5% of NAV. At the same time, we were redeploying capital into tankers, which are now performing extremely strongly due partly to the world economy reopening after lockdowns, but also due to sanctions against Russia leading to a lot of dislocations in the energy markets, which are very good for shipping because ships are needed to move energy around. I've always thought that what drives the market in shipping is the performance of the global economy and trade in particular. And if we are going into a difficult period now, what second impacts are going to have on the shipping markets in those areas that you've talked about in uh, uh, Balkas and uh, containers and so on. Two things matter in shipping, just like in other businesses that are sort of commodity related, supply and demand. So clearly the demand outlook today is not as strong as it was one or two years ago. That demand outlook, however, is most negative or has become more negative versus uh, recent expectations in container ships where the market is the most GDP sensitive because it's consumer demand. And that's why we've exited containers. If we then look at both bulkers and tankers, all else equal, we have a very strong position from the supply side and that over the past three years, very few ships have been ordered, not only due to uncertainty, due to um, geopolitical and macroeconomic situation, including the first year or first six months of COVID, but also the uncertainty over future regulations for emissions from ships, which means that because ships are a 25 to 30 year asset and we want to be net zero and we expect to be net zero by 2050, there is a risk to many of the small and medium sized ship owners in terms of what sort of investments can they make today to be net zero by 2050 because you don't want to have the wrong assets. So very few ships on order, very few ships in those segments delivering over the next two years. And the current geopolitical tensions tend to be very positive for tankers. So to the extent that there will be a bit of weakness in bulkers, which we already highlighted in our 3Q webinar, that we expect will be more than offset by the strength in the tanker market. 
And in terms of the discount, why do you think uh, your shares have been punished more than some of the others in the in the sector? Well, I'm, I don't think we have been punished more than than other in the sector. Perhaps maybe a bit more than traditional core infrastructure funds or those that are linked to renewables. But certainly versus listed private equity versus the other listed shipping company, we have a discount that is significantly less. We take discount control very seriously. As I mentioned earlier, we as managers bought back over half a million dollars of shares last week, soon after we announced our third quarter NAV. Uh, and dividend increase, as well as two of our independent directors have also bought shares. We take it very seriously. So uh, these are very exciting times. It's good to have shipping companies back in the investment trust sector. What's the sort of long term? Do you think there'll be others coming back as well? Would you, would you welcome more competitors in this particular space? Or what is the advantage of having an investment trust structure in particular? We have used the investment company structure because we were targeting institutional investors primarily in the UK, who were looking for real asset exposure rather than high operational leverage or financial leverage, which most of the listed shipping companies at the time had. Whereas we have a fund structure where we have a diversified approach across different segments, low leverage, which is very different from what traditional shipping companies do. So we offered something new to those investors who probably weren't able to invest with us on a private basis. Do we welcome more competition? Probably at least marginally, yes. I think it's always better to have one or two strong peers. They may compete with us for capital raising at the margins, but to the extent that we all have a fairly similar story and we all look at things responsibly, I think we sort of reinforce each other's investment strategies. I've talked a lot about the importance of experience when it comes to picking investment trusts. And I'm very happy also to catch up today with Joe Curtis, who has been the manager of the City of London Investment Trust uh, since 1991. City of London Trust, also obviously very well known as the number one in the AIC's list of dividend heroes. That sort of increases dividend every year for, in your case, I think, is it 54 or 55? 56. 56 years <laughs> coming up now. And City of London's having a good year, in, in, at least in very, very difficult markets. And City of London's yes. having a good year. I think you're uh, one of the few trusts actually delivered a positive share price uh, total return over the last year, last 12 yes. months. And you're still paying a 5% dividend, which is uh, obviously yes. very welcome. So what's been happening? How, how have you been seeing the market in, uh, in the last year or so? Well, our portfolio is fairly conservative. And so we're in stocks which, in the kind of bull market of recent years, did reasonably, but weren't leading the market. The market was led by kind of high growth, type of stocks, technology stocks sometimes. And with the rise in interest rates this year, aggravated by inflation and the war in Ukraine, there's been a big move in bond yields. And um, it's really been a turnaround in the market. It's moved more towards our kind of conservative type of uh, part of the market, like um, consumer staples. And also some of our holdings and financials have benefited from, from rising interest rates. And I think also our holdings and energy sector benefit from the rising oil price. So, I mean, the UK market has been an interesting one this year. Your trust is in the UK equity income sector. Been interesting. I mean, the UK market has done relatively well at the top end of the market, not so well down the market, mid cap and small cap. But you're mainly operating at the top end of the market. And so you've been benefiting from that. That's absolutely right. We're predominantly in large companies. And so the mid mid 250 index is is more cyclical and um, more domestic, whilst our companies tend to be sort of more international. Uh, so we have certainly benefited from that. We have also um, around 17% in overseas listed stocks, gain large companies and 
obviously the fall in sterlings helped um, our valuation of, of those companies. How do you see the outlook from here? I mean, it's, uh, it's been a difficult year so far. Yes. <laughs> we had a lot of political turmoil in the UK as well. Do you think we've uh, reached the top of the interest rate cycle and the concerns about inflation? I mean, the UK market has done better relatively this year, has been a big turnaround. Um, you know, the market's previously been led by growth stocks uh, with a rise in interest rates and rising inflation aggravated by war in Ukraine. The future value of profits has been, its discount rate has changed and therefore um, there has been a shift away from growth stocks. And uh, some of the strengths of the UK market, you know, come through in terms of, you know, the energy sector has done a lot better. Financials have to some extent benefited from rising interest rates. So uh, it's been a better period particularly for large companies and mid-250 stocks are, tend to be more domestic or more cyclical and so they've had a challenging year so far this year. You've said to me in the past that uh, you know, when times are difficult that's uh, a good time for your trust in, in relative terms. How long do you think this uh, current crisis is going to go on? I mean, it's, Do you think we're going to get a recession and uh, what will you be uh, looking out for? What's going to mark the turning point as far as you're concerned? Yeah, central banks having been too expansionary monetary policy during the pandemic because they were obviously understandably worried about going into depression um they kept their lax conditions too long until inflation emerged and then that was aggravated by the war in ukraine and the rise in the oil price so now they're determined to bring inflation under control and particularly in the us the federal reserve um it's made clear that it's could inflict pain on the economy in order to bring inflation back and both in the UK and in the US there's a very tight labour market um, and so we're not yet at the peak of interest rates in my opinion I think we have further increases and I think a slowdown in the economy is inevitable but, um, I think share prices are reflecting some of that reality and as I was saying that I think there's terrific value in the UK and you know relative to other world markets as evidenced by the number of takeovers we've seen including those companies like Morrison's, Bruin Dolphin and Daily Mail, which City of London held. We've had a long period when growth stocks have done very well, as we know, because of the interest rate policy in part. And the UK equity income in relative terms as a sector hasn't delivered the same total returns as you could have got from the Scottish mortgages and all those, all those sort of vehicles. But you had a very good period before that. So uh, do you think we're in for a uh, you know, regime change here? Where we're actually going to see quite a long period of equity income doing relatively well? I think it's a difficult question for me to answer really i mean i i know that trusts such as ours offer you know appealing combination of an attractive dividend yield um we've grown the dividend for 56 years and kind of consistent returns um through different markets i mean it's it's very difficult to really opinionate on kind of where the leadership of the market is really going to go and i think it'd probably be a mistake to try and guess that but i i'm confident that our trust will provide investors with, with competitive returns. Does that mean that you're not going to make huge sort of shifts in the allocation within the trust? And what have you done so far this year in terms of changing the, the portfolio? We're pretty happy where we're positioned. I mean, we've got two main building blocks, financials and consumer staples, and about 20% in both those two industry groups. But we've also got around 10% in healthcare, just under 10% in energy, around 9% in industrials. So it's quite a diversified approach. And I think that's important in running an income fund. You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. You know, you don't want to be exposed to dividend cuts in one area of the market. So you, I think diversification is, is quite helpful. So um, overall, it's a pretty conservative setup towards um, stocks with a reasonable value, in my opinion, and um, try and avoid heavily indebted companies, particularly in cyclical industries. 
that brings us to the end of this uh, particular podcast from the AIC's Investor Showcase event. Next week, as I said, we'll be back to a more conventional format and uh, we're very close to finalising the new ongoing format for the podcast, uh, which will be continuing. Numbers of listeners continue to grow, I'm happy to say, and I'm looking forward to uh, moving it forward further as we go towards the end of this very interesting year. One final comment I could make is that last week I sent off the final proofs of this year's Investment Trust Handbook to the printers. Uh, it should be coming out in the first week of December, God willing, and I hope you'll look out for that. If you haven't uh, seen it before, uh, obviously you'd be welcome to give it a trial. You can uh, buy it from Harriman House, or indeed there is a free ebook alternative you can download. Such is the generosity with which we produce this uh, annual publication. Anyway, that's uh, for the future as well. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and apologies again if you've been uh, disconcerted by the uh, amount of background noise in this week's uh, podcast. We'll be back to normal next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.